Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious. I'm Adam White. A new article focuses attention on what its authors describe as a deeper truth about regulation. Namely, quote, a full account of the U.S. regulatory system must pay more attention to the fact that this system not only imposes obligations, but avoids and lifts them as well, end quote. The authors refer to this avoidance or lifting as unrules. That's also the name of their article, available now on SSRN and forthcoming soon in the Stanford Law Review. And two of its authors are my guests today. Carrie Colonisi is the Edward B. Schills Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he also directs the Penn Program on Regulation, a great program. I really encourage you to look up their website, which is full of, of interesting articles. And he's joined by Daniel Walters. Dan Walters is an assistant professor of law at the Pennsylvania State University Law School. Carrie, Dan, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks uh, for inviting us, uh, Adam. It's great to be here. And I should acknowledge at the outset that our third co-author, Gabe Scheffler at the University of Miami Law School, regrets that he can't be with us today. Well, I assure the audience he has a very good excuse. <laughs> so, <laughs> he does. So, um, he does indeed. The best one. And I hope he'll milk it for the next 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's 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 start with, with the title of the article. It's a really fascinating article. I, I so much enjoyed it. It's a challenging article. And and it ends with with really interesting calls for reforms. Carrie, what's an unrule? Oh, well, uh, let's start by the more straightforward question, what's a rule? <laughs> because I think uh, to understand an unrule, it's the opposite of that. And when we think about rules or regulations uh, across the board, I think most people associate that with red tape, burdens, it's lots of books and forms and paperworks and restrictions. and things that we can't do or things that we must do. Uh, ultimately, all of that's true. I mean, those are what rules and regulations do. They impose legal obligations on people, either to refrain from some action or to undertake a certain kind of action or prevention or some kind. What we are exposing in this paper is the extent to which there's this second side of the coin of regulation. Unrules are the opposite of rules. So if rules are imposing obligations, what unrules are doing is alleviating, maybe lifting, uh, adjusting, lightening uh, obligations. Uh, you know, and I think the point of our paper is to see that if what we care about with administrative law is to constrain government discretion, and we only look at the side of the coin that's imposing obligations, we're, we're, we're leaving uh, behind this second side of the coin where agencies can, can lift obligations. Now, you know, by talking about legal obligations, I hope that makes clear that rules uh, come about 
from many sources. So I know in, in the administrative law context, most people, when they think about rules, they might think about the final rule that's published in the federal register that an agency, those are sources of legal obligations, but legal obligations can also emanate directly from statutes uh, as well. Uh, so when we are talking about rules and unrules, we're not necessarily limiting ourselves just to uh, agency adopted regulations, but uh, but I think that's certainly a primary focus of ours, in part because, uh, as you know, Adam, that's where much law is made today. I mean, many more uh, final rules uh, in the agency-created sense uh, uh, adopted every year than, than statutes by Congress. I should also just say at the outset one other clarifying point that one might think of, well, if rules are imposing obligations, then the opposite of rules might be something like guidance documents that are not binding. And in some sense, I suppose not bindingness is something you could think of as the opposite of, of a rule. But that's really not what we're, we're focused on here. It's not just, you know, these these the existence of guidance documents. Uh, rather, it's you know the af affirmative lifting or carving out or alleviating of some obligations that that would be in place. Well, let's let's dig in then to, to the the framework that you tee up here. You have two main categories. One is carve outs, and one is dispensations. What's the diff What are those, and and what's the difference? Okay, so uh, what one one of the uh, objectives that we're undertaking in this paper is to unify uh, our understanding of obligation alleviation. And as you say, one type of unrule we call a carve-out. Other people have certainly written uh, about these, say, in the form of grandfathering provisions yeah. uh, that might appear in, in the law. These are, are categorical um, uh, in some sense, uh, well, carving out of spaces that are, are 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 domains that are not covered by a rule, they're usually made at either the you know the time a, a, a rule uh, is imposed or created, or when it's when it's amended, mm -hmm. um, uh, and it, it applies to anyone to who falls into that carved out space, and the contrast with. Uh, Dispensations, which is also something that 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 other scholars have certainly recognized, uh, they when they write about waivers or Waiver. variances or the like, these are more individualized, case by case, granted exceptions uh, from uh, otherwise applicable legal doctrines, and we we bring these together in this unifying concept of unrules because uh, they reveal this, as I said, second side of the coin that's largely been been hidden. I think that it's a little bit more hidden when these things are divided up, uh, but, but both powers exist uh, in the administrative state. Both are powers to alleviate obligations. And, um, you know, in some sense, in the in the context of imposing obligations and in, in regulatory uh, scholarship, we recognize that rules can take a number of different forms. There's all sorts of taxonomies. There's a whole literature in law and economics on regulatory instrument design. 
And what we're saying is there's also this, in some sense, instrument choice or design when it comes to alleviating obligations as well. So you have this article is full of examples. And I, I wonder if Carrie, Dan, could either of you maybe offer uh, an example of a carve out or an example of a dispensation? We're going to next get into the big picture and the, quant- the sort of the big picture quantifiable, the, the quantitative sure. study. But just for listeners who are trying to come up with a concrete example of, of one of these, what's a, what's a carve out sure. and what's a dispensation? Yeah, so a, a, great, a great opportunity to clarify these and illustrate them. And, and honestly, we could spend the whole time giving you examples because that's yeah. one of the, one of our points is that these are everywhere. Say they're ubiquitous. Yeah. This is really interesting. The whole point of the whole point of the paper really is this is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And once you have a, a name to sort of unify these things, you sort of look at it and say, oh, these are, these are all over the place. They've been sort of hiding in plain sight. Exactly. So, uh, you know, as I said before, a carve out could be grandfathering provisions. So the uh, Clean Air Act uh-huh. has air quality standards, but if you have an existing facility, they don't apply to you. Uh, the, another one from the environmental law context would be the what's often referred to as the Halliburton loophole where uh, a subsequent piece of legislation, uh, Energy Policy Act was enacted that exempted uh, hydraulic fracturing wastes from the coverage under the uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, You know, maybe a more contemporary one, given that what we're all living through here in the year 2020, uh, you know, the COVID restrictions that many governors put in place uh, at least earlier this spring. And I suspect we'll probably see many more of these uh, here as we enter into the fall and the winter. Uh, these had a coverage for uh, you know, people to, to, to stay at home, right? Except for essential services, right? So that's a carve out. Those people in the business of essential services got a chance to continue their businesses when people who were in non-essential services didn't. So those are carve outs. And and like I said, you know, in some sense, anybody who falls into those categories, you're either in essential services or you're not, you know, you can, you can go about your, your business. Whereas a dispensation is really much more targeted case specific. Uh, You know, the federal aviation administration has a set of rules about how to fly drones safely if you have a different use and, and a different way of though also keeping uh, the public safe from drones, you can apply for a waiver from the existing drone regulations if you show that. Uh, I mean, another uh, example from our COVID experience that we're living through, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has what you know we all now know as emergency use authorizations. I mean, how many people in the country knew anything about an emergency use authorization, but we all know about it now. And, you know, uh, that's a a waiver or an exemption from, uh, for a specific product uh, or a specific uh, COVID test or a specific COVID vaccine, maybe uh, a waiver from, and this is across the board, the Securities and Exchange Commission issues, uh, no action letters. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security has waived 
you know, uh, environmental standards for building the border wall on the uh, southern border, uh, it, yeah. which raises, by the way, one other point to just mention is that unrules can apply to both, uh, you know, governmental entities as well as to uh, private sector entities too. Yeah. So, I mean, just like rules can as well. On that point, one I guess you could say one man's rule is another man's unrule, right? That a a rule for the the the, the a rule that limits the the government's discretion, right, would be I guess an unrule from the one who would otherwise be governed, and and vice versa. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? I kind of throw, just just occurred to me when you said that, so maybe that's totally wrong. Well, no, I think it's it's that's right. That you know, it may well be that. Um, you know, having more restrictions on when the government can impose rules actually helps, uh, you know, alleviate some obligations in practice. Yeah, I think so that's I, fair to say. I'm going to keep nibbling at the at the at the edges of this, trying to figure sure. out, trying to think think it through. But before we do, one of mm-hmm. the things I, I mean, I, this is a, just as I've I can't say enough, just such a fun and interesting paper to read. And when I got to the section where you began to quantify these things. And you know, and and reference to my George Mason colleagues at the Mercatus Center with 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 reg data, my eyes lit up. And and, <laughs> and Dan, could you talk tell us about just the, the the quantitative side of this, the magnitude of unrules? You did a a computer assisted um, analysis of was it the Federal Register was the U.S. Code? I think it was the Federal Register. I mean, it was definitely the Federal Register. But did you also do the U.S. Code? Yeah, we did a whole uh, slew of sources. So we did the Federal Register, we did the U.S. Code, we did the Code of Federal Regulations, yeah. uh, we did economically significant rules. Uh, so we tried to cover a, a really broad swath of uh, sources of regulatory obligations and ultimately regulatory unobligations, um, <laughs> uh, unrules. So um, just in terms of how we did this, I mean, we really were building on you know, uh, the work that was done by your colleagues uh, with reg data. I mean, we we essentially borrowed the uh, approach uh, right down to the level of identifying five uh, terms that we think are generally associated with unrules. Um, mm-hmm. So that's exactly the approach that your colleagues used. Uh, uh, you know, words like shall, must, uh, you know, things like that that impose obligations. That's all intuitively associated with the imposition of obligations. Yeah. Uh, but what's you know what we sort of uh, tried to do with our dictionary is to do the same thing, but with respect to obligation alleviation. So words like uh, may um, or um, uh, variance, um, except, uh, exception, exemption, uh, things along those lines. Um, so once we had a dictionary in place, it was simply a matter of applying that to these regulatory corpora. If, if, if you're allowed to have a favorite footnote in, in an article, my favorite footnote here is footnote 158, uh, where you say, these weren't the only words that we could use. Indeed, we brainstormed 19 possible obligation alleviating terms before settling on the five that we used. Um, I, I, I digress. I, th- I think you should coin an entire new system called unreg data. And, and go into competition <laughs> with the Mercatus guys. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> I digress. Dan, I cut you off. Please continue. So, so yeah, once we had uh, our dictionary, and we did uh, make a lot of choices, um, you know, based on what we thought was intuitively, you know, linked to the concept of unrules. Um, you know, from there, it's simply a matter of applying it to these regulatory corpora. 
Um, and, uh, you know, what we find is that across these different sources, um, there is very consistently uh, uh, sort of a presence of unrules uh, in the sources. So, you know, while we would never claim that obligations are on an equal footing with unrules, our data don't bear that out. Uh, you know, there is a, 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 a imba an imbalance uh, of the two different kinds of terms. We are, after all, looking at regulatory sources. <laughs> As one would expect. Yes, <laughs> right. exactly. But we do find across these sources a ratio of about one unrule to five to six rules, uh, which I think, you know, struck me uh, as... Uh, counterintuitive, given everything we know about regulation and, and what, or what we think we know about regulation. Um, so, uh, you know, we do a lot more unpacking of that uh, in, in the, the text and happy to talk about particulars there. But the overarching finding is that these are omnipresent uh, and ubiquitous, as we say. If I could just add to that, uh, you know, I think in, in many respects, this is an undercount, though, of unrules, because all we really can do is look at either carve-outs or provisions that authorize dispensations primarily is what we're, we're, we're capturing. We're not capturing the actual uh, granting of a dispensation, which sometimes could be delivered really with a wink and a nod, quite frankly. You know, we're, we're going to let you go ahead and and, and and take a pass on this. I mean, it, you know, sometimes this is so frequently occurring uh, in the wake of the Deepwater Horizon explosion in the Gulf Coast. Uh, you know, the, the, the study commission that took a look at it has a general counsel's report that documented that there were, you know, sometimes daily exemptions being granted to the uh, BP Deepwater Horizon rig there for, from existing uh, regulations. In fact, uh, you know, last one was just a few days before the, the big explosion occurred. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and, and we know actually from reporting over the last several years that uh, there have been something on the order of one, one media report uh, was about 1,700 additional exemptions being granted uh, for just the offshore oil drilling. So, I mean, we, we don't capture all of that activity that's happening on a day-by-day -day basis yeah. where agencies are granting dispensations uh, in this. So in some sense, it might, it, I mean, I think it's definitely an undercount. I don't know, uh, you know, how much of an undercount, but, but it's striking how much uh, of this activity there is. And another reason it's an undercount, or, or at least a reason we think it's an undercount, uh, is because a single authorization for dispensation, for instance, uh, could potentially sweep quite broadly to invalidate or temporarily waive, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different obligations. So some of these provisions are written incredibly broadly, um, you know, where uh, a CFR provision, for instance, would say that the agency can waive any regulation in the title uh, of the CFR uh, that regulates the subject. Um, so, you know, it's pretty much to the discretion of the agency just how broadly they want to construe that language and exercise that authority. Um, yeah. So a single count, uh, I mean, that uh, appears as one hit in our data, uh, but it really could be quite a bit broader than that. We just have no way of knowing. Yeah. Now, you're identifying these things and coming up with this taxonomy to, to as, as you say, to unify these, these concepts. 
And it's all aimed towards both putting a spotlight on it, but then you know identifying the, the, the costs in terms of, of foregone regulatory benefits, um, the, the, the difference, differential treatment it procedures, um, and ultimately you have some reforms at the end. But when I, anybody who reads this article is going to take a step back and, and sort of nibble around the edges at what this is. So, let, so bear with me. I, I just can't help it, but, but sort of mm-hmm. ask some questions. So with the, you, you said, you know, the sort of the wink and the nod dispensation. So if I'm, if I am driving down the old highway, the speed limit thing, right? If I'm cruising down the highway over the speed limit and I get pulled over, and the police officer gives me a wink and a nod. That's that's obviously a dispensation, right? That's that's right. that's the the equivalent of a dispensation. If I'm cruising down the highway at you know ten miles over the speed limit, and there's no police officer there, um, does that? And so I'm breaking the law. But the government, the county knows that I'm. They're not going to have one hundred percent enforcement, right? Is how does that fit into the dispensation framework? Um, does your approach assume what, whether it's dispensations or carve outs actually, does it assume 100% compliance with the law and then sort of back up or do you presume a baseline of, of non-compliance? Yeah, I wouldn't want to say that any instance of non-compliance is evidence of an unrule, right? If, yeah. if that's an evidence of a rule being violated, right? Uh, uh, but if 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 there is an official action taken in contemplation of allowing that violation to occur, then that is more deliberate, intentional, and would fall within this this category. So it could be the the the, yeah. the individual police officer, or it could be that the county just decides, you know, we're not going to have, we don't want to police traffic speeding on this stretch of highway ever. Right. And that, if that's a deliberate policy choice there, then I think uh, that's an unrule. I mean, it's not dissimilar in this respect from, uh, for example, at the federal level, the DACA program, which, uh, you know, across the board said, basically, we're going to give dispensations to anyone uh, who meets these certain criteria. Yeah. The, the tailoring rule, for example, um, in yes. the utility or regulatory group, that's like, right. that would be a, I mean, it's, let's right, think about exactly. this. So that would be a, since it wasn't part of the original rule, I mean, it was sort of promulgated at the same time as the substantive standard, but it was slight, it was, it was slightly, it was parallel to it. I guess in some ways that would be a dispensation, right, from the underlying standards, especially since the tailoring rule is going to ratchet automatically sort of ratchet down its its non enforcement over time. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we get to these uh, uses of non enforcement discretion, yeah, you can get into this this gray area, and we've had debates among ourselves even at times about whether something's like DACA is it really just a whole bunch of dispensations or is it really more like a carve out or like a constructive carve out? And I think that what we have in the tailoring rule really, in my mind, works more like a carve out, which says, you know, we're only opposing this obligation on these large facilities at this time. Uh, You know, another example that we give in that administrative law folks will probably find familiar is the benzene rule yes uh, where yeah. OSHA was regulating uh, you know uh, setting a permissible exposure limit on 
uh, benzene and imposed it on rubber manufacturers and petroleum refineries. But it turned out that the largest category of workers exposed to benzene were gas station attendants uh, back in the 70s when we actually still had full service gas stations. But, um, but OSHA didn't cover them at all. And I think that's, that's what we're talking about with a carve out when there's, a very, again, a very intentional effort to say, you know, we, this, the purpose of this rule would apply maybe even with greater force uh, in the benzene case to, to covering those service station workers, but uh, we're, we're deliberately, you know, carving them out. And sometimes, yeah. by the way, you don't even have to say that in the rule. It's yeah. just done sort of surreptitiously and anybody within the agency or anybody with even familiarity with the with the issue would would realize that that's happening but but the public might not necessarily immediately know yeah when we were chatting before we we turned on the record button um we're you know i I said you know just thinking through what the baseline is and that's that's that i guess that's one of the challenges right and and you know one, one of the places where i as a you know a I wouldn't call myself libertarian, but a pretty liberty-minded guy. You know, my the one place where I sort of bristled in in the paper was was where it's just the term carve out, right? Because carve out presumes the term carve out presumes that there was something there and then it was carved out. And sometimes that's obvious. Like you said, there are some cases where you can look at a rule and say, well, obviously this was it in a neutral way. This should have covered X. The fact that it doesn't cover X means it's been carved out. But you could also, there are, there are surely some cases where what one person sees as a carve out, another person says, well, there was this baseline of regulation and they realized they could sort of expand it here, but they didn't expand it here. And so the question is, is that a carve out or is that just additional regulation over here for these people who are differently situated? Uh, and so I guess how to put it in the, in the, the highway speed limit example, um, if, if the, the county has a speed limit and then they scale it back. I mean, that could be a carve out, but if the, if the county sort of thinks about a speed limit of say 70, 65 and, but then they settle on one of 75, have I been carved out of it? Right. I guess, you know, where do you measure the baseline? Um, And it gets really tricky with an agency where there's a notice and comment process, as you discuss in the, in the paper, sometimes carve outs arise at the very end of a process and, and now, okay, at this point, now I'm just rambling. What's the, ba- how, how do you measure the baseline <laughs> for, for defining what counts as a carve out or not? Well, I think all that you have done here is actually, I think, strengthen our point that this could be incredibly expansive if you really thought about it. And we've, we're not going that far. We're being much more conservative in our data estimation. And we're just saying, listen, look in the language of the, of these rules themselves. And when they say uh, the, it, you know, everybody gets this covered except the small firms, well, that's a carve out. Now, I, I, there's no uh, necessarily normative judgment that we're placing on this. I mean, it, it it's sensible to carve out s- some small businesses from rules that would uh, would otherwise apply to them. Uh, you know, in fact, I think one of the 
takeaways of this exercise is that rather than, as I started off with saying, when we think about the regulatory state, we think about red tape and burdens and obligations, there is intrinsically this non-obligation, this, this, you know, this, this demarcation of where rules could have gone, maybe should have, maybe should have gone, but maybe shouldn't have. But the point is actually the system is much, much more flexible. There's much more flexibility and limitations and, and there's much more libertarianism in a sense, even built into and baked into the rules themselves. And they're baked in through these carve-outs and uh, through the possibility of these dispensations. Now, there is a real there is a real cost to unrules when they they they. I mean, you you identify yeah. a number of them. There are costs of unrules right. in terms of uh, tilted, as you, I think you put it. It's a good line. It's it's good tilted transparency, procedural differences. Why don't you walk us through sure. um, the, the the sort of the the net net of this? As, yeah. as you reorient administrative law towards greater appreciation of the place for unrules, um, what are the sort of the the, the 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 things that this further uncovers and 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 sort of call out for reform? Well, maybe what I can do is just highlight what I think first of all are some of the reasons why the public should care about this, why any of your listeners should care about this. Uh, you know, I have, as, as I just said, I think there can be some positive, responsible use of unrules, but there also can be some dangers. And then maybe I can pass it off to Dan to talk a little bit about how it's um, perhaps, sh it should be much more concerning to administrative law folks that there's, in some sense, less oversight and constraints placed upon agencies when they exercise their unrule authority than when they have to impose when, when they when they're what they have to go through to impose rules yeah. so what i see i think we see three big dangers first of all one is just that you can end up uh negating the regulatory benefits so if the minerals management service was over granting exemptions to those offshore oil and gas drillers in the Gulf Coast, and that contributed to the Deepwater Horizon spill, then, you know, you have these rules that are in place, but the exceptions literally swallow uh, the rule. Um, another second danger to be aware of is the possibility that these unrules can be used for favoritism. So I think mm -hmm. libertarians should be very much concerned about the unfair wielding of rule and unrule power. Uh, we discuss at some length in the paper uh, the uh, incident in 2018 when the EPA granted an exemption from its renewable fuel standards to Carl Icahn, who happened to be, you know, uh, early advisor to the president. The program uh, has a dispensation authority to grant waivers for these small refineries, uh, but it doesn't appear that Carl Icahn had a real small refinery. In fact, uh, the EPA uh, 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 granted waivers to a number of large uh, oil companies. And I, ironically, in that particular case, um, the EPA had some a lawyer working in their program office who had previously worked for the uh, uh, the 
Trade Association for the Petroleum Industry, and he was given an ethics waiver, a type of unrule by the White House uh, counsel uh, to work in the EPA. So, uh, you know, anyway, so the, 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 there is this real risk of regulatory favoritism. Um, on that point, Kerry, that did call to my mind years and years ago when, when waivers started becoming more of an issue and around the time that uh, Judge Barron um, co-wrote his piece on, on Big Waiver, I remember Richard Epstein, who is, certainly is a right. libertarian, he, right, wrote a, right. uh, he wrote a piece for National Affairs, a policy journal I'm involved with, um, and it was and it was he called it government by waiver. And he said, you know, libertarians should very much worry about the sort of the, the, the systematic problems and imbalances of relying so much on um, sort of prescribing a broad rule and then giving government just unfettered discretion to grant waivers to the people who they like. I mean, that is, I, I thought of that quite a lot, actually, as I was reading through your paper. Exactly. And we we cite Richard uh, for that very proposition. Yeah. You know, there's another worry, and I think Richard highlighted this in his paper too, is that this unrule authority can be wielded over people to get them to do some things that aren't yeah. necessarily legally required that haven't gone through so there's a there's there's the 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 using the unrule as a backdoor to to imposing some rules and it, which really is leads to the third danger that we highlight really which is what we call the unrule of law that this will break down uh, that we have um you know the ability to really uh you know get have government sort of escape from uh, the constraints that are under it. So if the yeah. if the agencies are, for example, supposed to go through a rulemaking process, then that's what they should do to impose obligations, not say, you know, the rules are so onerous, but we're going to grant you this unrule if you yeah. do something else altogether. Yeah, so Scal these are these are the Scalia concerns that we we highlight. Scalia famously was famous article was the rule of law is the law of rules, and so this is the the unrule of law is the law of unrules. Basically, yeah, um, yeah. I keep I keep interjecting. I'm so sorry about this. <laughs> no, um, no, I, yeah. that's right. So, and then and that what that leads to, and I'll pass it off to Dan, is you know the concern that in some important respects, our administrative law system tends to give unrules more of a pass when a, and, and agencies more of a pass when they want to engage in this unrule authority. Yeah. Yeah. So just picking up on that, um, you know, our starting point. You know, we go all the way back to the the origins of the modern administrative state and, and uh, the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946. And, you know, it's very obvious if you review that history that the sort of uh, point of having an Administrative Procedure Act was to constrain agencies' discretion to impose obligations. Um, and really, there's just a complete blind spot when it comes to you know, the potential issues that we're talking about with unrules. Uh, no one is talking about it. And if anything, probably New Deal lawyers like James Landis would have celebrated the uh, opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, Im implement unrules with, with almost unfettered discretion. So it's, it's not a real surprise that it doesn't appear in the legislative history uh, of the Administrative Procedure Act. But then, you know, sort of where we really take the paper is to trace that out over time and to show that in our modern administrative law, subsequent to the Administrative Procedure Act, we have engrafted all kinds of procedural exceptions. I mean, they're actually unrules in administrative law to some extent um, uh, to make room for agencies to implement unrules 
uh, with less oversight than they uh, uh, have to um, uh, uh, yield to uh, when they're implementing obligations. Um, so just to talk about you know, a couple of these, we, we note that uh, when it comes to just the incentives uh, for an agency in uh, exercising its power, um, there's no incentive for agencies to submit to uh, the regulations uh, of the Freedom of Information Act, for instance, uh, uh, you know, in terms of publicizing what action is being taken. Um, if an agency wants to uh, obligate uh, some party to do something, it obviously has incentives to make that very clear. Um, not so when an agency doesn't want to do anything or wants to alleviate an obligation. Uh, in that situation, probably the incentives are pointing in the exact opposite direction to not say anything about it and to, you know, if, if possible, execute that arrangement in a wink and a nod deal, as we talked about <laughs> earlier. Yeah. Um, so, so there are all kinds of things like this if you survey administrative law, we, we talk about the logical outgrowth rule and, you know, uh, 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 trimming rules as it goes through the process. Um, and we can talk more about particular uh, examples. Yeah. There are questions about that, but, but mo even moving beyond that, um, there are all kinds of political economy reasons to expect uh, that there's going to be uh, more infrastructure in administrative law to deal with obligations rather than uh, the alleviation of obligations. So we talk uh, at length about uh, sort of the fact that uh, when uh, regulatory obligatees uh, are uh, faced with the prospect of having to uh, comply with some obligations, they have a very strong incentive to mobilize, to do things like file lawsuits, uh, challenging agency action. But that's really not the case when it comes to diffuse regulatory beneficiaries. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and we have a very broad definition of that. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. there are a lot of groups that do a lot of litigation on behalf uh, of regulatory beneficiaries. But at a general level, it's going to be harder. Uh, and, and this goes back to a long line of literature, starting with Olson and, and uh, James Q. Wilson. There's going to be all kinds of problems with organizing people who don't really fully realize what the implications of an unrule are uh, mm -hmm. uh, to do something about it, to actually use the machinery of administrative law to do something about it. Um, yeah. So, so that has uh, in turn manifested in, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, doctrinal differences in how we treat uh, rules versus unrules. So uh, again, things like standing doctrine um, uh, and even the way that uh, arbitrary and capricious review is uh, actually administered by courts, we spot all kinds of differences, uh, some informal and some formal uh, in how courts are actually treating uh, claims about unrules versus rules. So uh, on balance, we find that there's, you know, it's not that there's a complete lack of oversight of unrules, uh, but there's clearly uh, less oversight uh, uh, on a, raw, a wide range of issues. And one of those you mentioned earlier, Adam, was tilted transparency that, you know, sometimes we just don't even know that these uh, unrules are there. So how can they be challenged? How can they be reviewed? How can courts take a look at them? How can OIRA uh, consider them? Uh, all of these things. And I think that's where we say the first steps really have to be is to try to uh, get get a little better handle on uh, on how much of this is out there. We're starting that with this paper, but we we offer some solutions at the end of the paper where we think that 
there could be some meaningful efforts to force agencies to be more transparent and to create maybe even some private rights of action or some mandatory independent audits for compliance to uh, of agencies to to make sure that they actually are uh, providing full transparency. One of the things we found is that, and we did in the paper, is we studied uh, some random samples of dispensation grants of authority in statutes and in the CFR, uh, and uh, only about 15 to 20% of those came accompanied with any requirement that agencies disclose when they are granting these dispensations. So there's there's a, a lot that even after our paper <laughs> is out uh, remains hidden. And we think that uh, you know there's enough reason here to be concerned about unrules to make some steps forward to bring some sunlight to this area of administrative discretion. Well, let's, let's maybe finish on that then the, the, the initial steps that you, you point out that could be taken to help um, reorient administrative law in, in a way that corrects some of these imbalances. I mean, you're very candid at the end. There's only so much that can be done. Um, these the unrules are, are ubiquitous and there is just some sort of structure. It just seems some structural biases and administrative law away from on rules will be tough to correct. But you you offer two sort of, as you call them, initial steps. One is focused on the processes within the agencies, the way they go about their work. And then the second, sort of with OIRA as, as the key example, you look at ways in which um, regulatory analysis, especially under OIRA's oversight, could help correct the, the imbalance. Could, could either of you maybe just give a, an overview of those? Well, you know, take the uh, the example I was talking about earlier about Carl Icahn and some of these big oil companies getting these waivers by EPA under this provision that allowed for small refineries to get yeah. waivers. We went back and we looked at the OIRA uh, uh, process and the, the regulatory impact analysis that the agency conducted uh, of these renewable of of the underlying renewable fuel standards that these were exemptions from, and they didn't take that into account. And we think that you know, if nothing else, there would be value in some kind of sensitivity analysis, some treatment of the uncertainties around the benefits and the costs uh, if a regulation has a clear uh, waiver or um, or other kind of dispensation authority built into it. That's something I think that could be could be done, uh, having OIRA be more sensitive uh, to the possibilities here. Um, you know, it, it, it is true that, you know, it's difficult right now, I think, to think through what the exact nature of doctrinal changes should be. We think, in some sense, all of the, the doctrinal imbalances that we talk about in the paper are good candidates possibly for reconsideration and tweaking and to adjust and respond to this. But I think we're, we're a little bit, uh, I guess, uh, you know, as academics are and social scientists are, we want to make those decisions based upon better information. So we think it would be important to get more transparency in place first, and then we can see uh, maybe that will perhaps provide enough, uh, uh, you know, and, and as Dan said, it's not as if these unrules are never challenged. Uh, even the renewable fuel standard waivers did eventually end up in court. Uh, I think it was uh, an investigative journalist who happened to uncover that they had been granted. And then uh, some of the 
the refiners uh, competitors have sued, but um, it, it doesn't happen all the time and there is this imbalance. So we would like to know uh, more about how much is out there and going on. Well, this is, uh, this is the kind of article that's gonna spur a lot of debate and a lot of subsequent scholarship. I guess just the last question for, for either of you is, do you have any thoughts on, on what the, the next steps in the sort of the, the build out of this, this framework is, is gonna be? I hate to sort of ask you to spoil what you're working on next. Um, and this can all be taken out in post-production, um, but, but, but if you already sort of know where it's headed, if it's already something you brought out publicly, I'd be interested in hearing it. The data that we were fortunate to be able to, to acquire, uh, to do the kind of analysis that we do, we, we, we found here, we, we do have plans to use that data for further research. We've got a track record here that uh, we're building and, 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 and I think that we've only really uh, mind the status just uh, in a very small way right now. There's so much more we could do. Dan, any thoughts on where this is headed, headed next, either in terms of what you're doing or what you hope others will do? Yeah, the most exciting thing from my perspective is just this really rich data that we have here, which, you know, you could potentially start to look at, you know, what determines when agencies, uh, you know, issue unrules, uh, does that vary by administration, uh, political party control of government, time, uh, you know, subject matter, there's a lot to explore there. And I think, uh, you know, we haven't uh, dug into that uh, in this paper, but obviously, that's something we'll want to revisit in the future. Right. I think we do even mention in the paper, you know, one paragraph that, you know, we have only scratched the surface here of all the questions that could be answered. Yeah. And and a podcast can only scratch the surface of this great <laughs> article. And so I guess we'll we'll leave it at that. Kerry Colonisi, Dan Walters, thank you so much for joining us today. It's thanks, my Adam. pleasure, Adam. Take and, care. And, and thanks as always to our listeners for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. 